Matthew 5, 33-37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you, Rob and Des and Dave, for leading us in prayer and such. Sorry, I'm getting used to this new pulpit that we, uh, you may have noticed, uh, that we have, um, built by the brilliant Matt Vanderveld. Is that right? Yes, I've said the name right. Um, And there's a bit of history in this because he got the wood and sourced the wood from an old uh, barn, but more importantly, uh, from Clem White's uh, library. These were his old shelves. So um, it's it's wonderful to have a bit of history uh, here with us this morning. But um, yes, uh, Matt uh, played the role of Noah, and he put this thing together, and uh, it's it's beautiful. So yes, if you are wondering, you can come and pat it uh, later, and uh, you can even smell it because it smells amazing. Uh, But in saying all of that, why don't we uh, come to our Lord in prayer before we come to his word this morning. Father, we are so thankful that we can be together here this morning to be so public in our worship, to be led in prayer, uh, to be led in song, uh, to have your word read uh, without shame or compromise among us this morning. We are so thankful for these things. We pray, Father, that as we come to your word this morning, that our Lord Jesus would be held high among us and that we would be changed by the word. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the past uh, couple of days, I've been reading uh, Elizabeth Rogers' book, stories of Australia's Christian heritage, uh, in which she presents a number of essays about the spiritual lives of some of Australia's greatest explorers. Now, what I've found so fascinating about the different essays is that though there was a race to become the most famous adventurer in which to map Australia out, The explorers that made it into the history books, though tempted, never exaggerated or made up their claims as to what they had reached or discovered. And they gained a reputation as being brutally truthful. Now, in a day and age where no one could really verify what they had claimed, It's interesting that no one ever made these explorers take an oath or a vow to verify if they were telling the truth or not. 
That's because the early settlers knew that these explorers held the truth to be the most important factor in the whole world because these men knew for people to survive, for society to flourish, that their word was the only thing that the settlers had to go on. And so these explorers were taken at their word. Fascinating stuff, a a great read, whole families, whole towns trusting in the word of a couple of men because of their reputation of being honest and truthful. What a reputation to have, right? To, To be so the people of truth that complete strangers are willing to bet their very lives on nothing more than your yes being yes and your no being no. Well, this is the very picture that Jesus would have for his church. But first, let's get a bit of context to our passage this morning. So for the past few weeks, we've been at the feet of Jesus, who has been teaching the crowds, and more specifically, his disciples on this mountain about what it is to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And how one should conduct themselves in this world and looking forward to the day of its full manifestation, which is still to come. Which Jesus likened to being the salt and the light of this world. And that's what the disciples of Jesus do, right? We hear the gospel Uh, We repent and trust in Jesus and we enter into the kingdom of heaven instantly. That's what happens when anyone calls upon the name of the Lord. Yet as we know, we're not instantly and physically transported into that kingdom, but continue to live here on earth looking forward in hope to that day when heaven and earth finally meet. But in doing that, says Jesus... In in following him as the king of this world, in being a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, in being the salt and the light of this world, well, we will also come against all kinds of persecution in this world. So we might ask the question here, what might make this dark world hate the light of the kingdom so much? Quite simply, because all disciples of Jesus are meant to live and breathe and have their being in following Jesus Christ, the king of this kingdom. That's what disciples of Jesus do. They they follow Jesus and seek to obey him in all that they do and say, because he is our Lord and king. But this is the rub. Jesus isn't some hippie cult leader where his motto is all is chilled man it's going to be okay so just do what you want as Hollywood might sell him to be no not in any sense as it was this very same Jesus who brought in the kingdom of heaven who said of himself that he had not come to rid the world of the law of God but had come to fulfill it in other words he had come to give the law its fullest expression. And more than that, he also said that all his disciples are not just to follow what he has laid out for us, but that we are also to teach all people to follow what he has had to say on the law. 
That's what Jesus has been taking us through from verse 21 onwards uh, of chapter 5. He's been taking us through how we are to understand the law in light of how it was meant to be understood. And that's that the law was given to expose the heart. Allow me to illustrate this in the context of gardening. Uh, The law wasn't given as pruning scissors to exclusively deal with the leaves on the tree, as was the popular understanding of the time. No, it was given as a bobcat to dig right down past what any shovel could hope to do so as to expose the very roots of the tree so that we might, might see the rot and damage that sin has done and call out to God for a total and utter transplant. In other words, the popular teaching of the time, which came from the Pharisees, focused on applying the law to the external actions of the person. But as Jesus has been showing us over and over and over through the weeks, though the actions of his disciples must change, and they really must change, change must happen from the very core of our being. As the law actually goes after the thoughts and the intentions of a person, to expose what's going on deep under the surface. And it's there, says Jesus, it's there in the very heart and mind of a person that sin needs to be both exposed and dealt with in order that they might truly enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's where we are so far, church. Uh, We're now just over halfway in a series of but I tell you, antidotes that our Lord has made in the face of the popular teaching of the Jewish religious teachers of the time. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in our text quite a bit this morning. So uh, if you do have your Bibles, please look with me at verse 33. Um, We read these words. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people of long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now, I want you to notice a word there at the beginning of verse 33. That is the word again. And I want you to notice that word because Jesus um, is again taking the popular teaching of the day, the stuff that his disciples had heard and understood in regards to how to apply the law, and he's going to again contrast what they had been taught with what the law was actually getting at. That's what we've been seeing so far, right? Jesus has said, you've heard it said to the people long ago, don't murder, but I tell you, the law judges you guilty of murder in the heart when you hate, guilty of adultery when you uh, lust, guilty of adultery when you tear apart what God has put together. That's how we have seen Jesus treat the law so far. So what is he directing his audience to now? Well, to their dodgy understanding in regards to oath-taking. You see, through the weeks, we've not only seen how Jesus applied the law, but in contrast, we've also seen how the religious teachers of the day, known as these Pharisees, understood and applied the law as well. And what have we learned about them? 
well, that the, the rabbis tended to be pretty permissive in their attitude towards people's actions so long as the letter of the law was upheld. For example, like we saw last week, as long as your wife received that certificate that Moses commanded to be given, then your divorce was legal and permitted in the eyes of God. So it goes without saying that that, that, that theology that they held uh, to also leaked into other areas of their teaching as well. And we'll certainly see that when it comes to their teaching about oaths and vows. But before we dive into this greater de- in greater detail, we have to have a good think about where this theological knife fight lay. Well, that battle lays with the phrase, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now, something to note here, um, this phrase in and of itself is a, is a summary of a general principle that can be derived from a whole bunch of passages that come out of the law and put together. For example, Leviticus 19.12, we read, do not Swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Hear that. The stress is not on swearing falsely. Again, Numbers 30 verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word but must do everything he said. Again, this passage takes up the idea of not breaking your oath and applies it to the people of God. Deuteronomy 23:21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you will be guilty of sin. Okay, so with all of these verses put together, and there's a few more, we get an idea that this general saying would have been what was on view here in verse 33, which was basically, if you make an oath in the name of God, make sure you do what you have said that you would do. Now, church, the question might be asked here, Why did people use to make vows at all, these oaths and vows at all? What was the point of them? Well, believe it or not, uh, vows, oaths, um, as they're used interchangeably here, are more common in our day and age than you might think. And they were very, very common in this context. You see, vows are a way of calling down a higher judgment upon ourselves than ourselves because people simply don't trust one another. In other words, it's calling on God to witness what is said so that people will be assured of one's honesty. To put it simply, vows are a way of solemnizing an agreement, an arrangement or a promise and calling God in as the legal witness. If you're a fan of uh, whodunits, you would have seen something similar to this when someone puts their hand on the Bible to make a vow in court, to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. They're calling God to witness the testimony that they're about to give. 
We even see world leaders doing it when they're sworn into office, though admittedly less and less here in Australia uh, with our prime ministers. Now, what seems to be on view uh, in our passage this morning is very similar to what we see in our courts, in that the Pharisees taught that vow-taking was very important business in the context of their civil courts. I mean, we've seen it in just those few verses that I've read. They weren't rejecting what had come out of Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, No, they taught that you had to be truthful, especially when a solemn promise had been given in the name of God. Yet there seemed to be a problem with how they both were both understanding and applying the law when it came to this vow taking. Read with me verses 34 through to 36. This is Jesus speaking, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Now, I say that there must have been a problem with their application, because like we've seen in previous weeks, Jesus isn't hitting back against what God had revealed through Moses in any which way. No, far from it. He's been deepening and broadening the shallow and external teaching that the Pharisees had taught the people. You have heard it said, Jesus says. So in no sense should we take this as Jesus saying that we mustn't be truthful, nor is he saying that vows are completely off the table. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, Jesus' problem seems to be with the pharisaical restriction of the law. You see, in verses 34 through to 36, we see something emerge that Jesus was challenging. And that wasn't what God revealed about oath-taking in his name, but the pharisaical system that had developed around it. You see, as we've seen through the weeks, the Pharisees were obsessed with the letter of the law. And so because they didn't want to break the law, well, at least externally, they developed these little man-made laws known as the traditions of the fathers, which actually kept people from following the big God-given revealed law. Think about it like this. Imagine you have a pool and you didn't want anyone falling in the pool because you were scared that they would drown. And so the responsible thing to do would be to put a fence around that pool, right? Well, admittedly, it certainly seems like the safer option. But where it had all gone wrong with the Pharisees is that the fence had become the be-all and end-all. So instead of teaching people about water safety, let's say, the Pharisees busied themselves with telling people all about the fence and nothing about the pool. And in that way, that's what we're seeing here. God had revealed in the law the way in which one could lawfully take a vow and make an oath in his name. Yet because the Pharisees were terrified of breaking this law, they had developed a fence around the law to make the binding of any oath, any vow, 
a little more squishy. Here's what I mean. The Pharisees were saying that if you make a vow in the name of the Lord, well, that needs to be kept no matter what. But to avoid that kind of commitment, if you make an oath in the name of, let's say, uh, Jerusalem, well, a city isn't on the same level as God, nor is it going to hold you to the same account. So maybe swearing on that is is a little bit more flexible if things don't work out. Same goes with heaven and earth and even your own head. But whatever you do, if you make a vow in the name of the Lord, well, there's no getting away from that. It's incredibly serious. And whatever you swore to do, well, that thing needs to be done because you made it in the name of the Lord. And it's this theology that Jesus is challenging. Because at the end of the day, though they thought they were honouring the law with these fences, they were actually playing fast and loose with the truth. Now, before we uh, unpack what Jesus is really getting at here, I want to go back and ask that question. Is it ever wrong to take a vow or an oath? I mean, we do it in marriage vows, with church membership vows. We even pledge ourselves as a church to those who are being baptised among us uh, to help them in their Christian walk, which we're going to do on the 11th of June uh, with the Decker family. Is Jesus saying, she's excited to be baptised, you can hear it, is Jesus saying that we have, uh, what we have done to our spouse or even to each other as a church, was that wrong? Well, if we look at the whole council of scripture, it's clear that godly people under the right circumstances took vows. We see it with the patriarchs making uh, promises, oaths, uh, vows to the living God, and, and they weren't rebuked. We see Paul making vows to different churches when he wrote to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Romans 1.9, for example. And we even read in Hebrews 6.17 that because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, He confirmed it with an oath. Hear that? Even even God took an oath in his own name. So with what we've seen the law reveal about vows uh, and what we see the whole council of Scripture speaking to us about, which is beautifully summed up in chapter 22 of the Westminster Confession, we have to conclude that it is not vow-taking per se that Jesus is totally against here. Now, in context to what he is addressing in regards to the pharisaical teaching on oaths, Jesus is totally and utterly against committal speech that attaches itself to a seemingly solemn truth statement, yet had an escape plan or escape clause in the fine print. That's what Jesus is opposing here. He's against people who make vows, but in their hearts are thinking, well, it's not like I'm calling on God and using his name here. So we might ask the question, what is Jesus saying? What is he 
speaking to us, us disciples, about? What is he warning us? Well, fortunately for us, brothers and sisters, Jesus actually picks this very theme up again and challenges the Pharisees on this very hypocritical teaching later on in his ministry, which gives us an incredible insight as to where all of this is coming from and what he is wanting us, his disciples, to think about when it comes to the way we speak. We read in Matthew 23, 16 through to 22. Woe to you, blind guides, that's to the Pharisees. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift of the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater? the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. And this is where I really want us to pay attention this morning, church. Jesus goes on, Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Notice that, church. Again, Jesus takes us to the very heart of the law by making it clear that everything is God's. Everything is his. So whether people swear by Jerusalem, by the earth, by some created thing, or even by God's temple, everything that is belongs to him. It's it's all under him. And so because of that, the Pharisees had fallen into the grave error into grave error because they thought that they could compartmentalize truth and bind themselves absolutely only when they had taken an oath in the name of the Lord. No, says Jesus, that, that, that doesn't work because everything, it's all under God. Everything is his. And so by implication of that fact, Jesus is teaching his disciples that all our speech is meant to be the truth not just when we make vows. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's teaching that everything that we say as believers is a reflection on God because we bear God's name as people of his kingdom. We are his people, the salt and light of this world. And that's all our speech must be seasoned with the truth, not just our vows and promises. This is the solemn warning, church. There is nothing that we should say, nothing that we should look to vow on that is any less binding than when taking an oath in the name of the living God. No, says Jesus, everything we say, everything we say we will do must be said in the light of knowing that it is all said under the watchful eye of our Creator. This means that everything we say, we we promise, we vow must be the truth because truth mustn't be compartmentalized and tied to greater or lesser binding statements. That's because every promise is made under God. Every vow is a promise before God. Verse 37, Jesus makes it clear for us. All you need to say is yes or no. 
Now, in light of all of that we've seen this morning, Jesus is simply saying to be very careful with what we say. Keep a watchful eye on your words. Be careful about making those promises that we're not able to keep. Uh, The Pharisees thought they had found a way to say one thing with their mouth all the while having their fingers crossed behind their back. I don't know if you've ever seen your kids do that. Yet Jesus says, you don't need to enter into that word spaghetti. Just simply do what you say will do, or if you can't, be up front, say no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And church, again, we find ourselves at the feet of Jesus, listening to how the popular teaching of the day totally fell short of what the law was always meant to do. And this morning, we've seen that because God keeps us in this world to advance his kingdom, it is vitally important that we individually and as the church reflect him in all that we do and say. And the fact of the matter is this, brothers and sisters, it is Jesus who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. And this morning, he's drawing us into that realisation that as his disciples, as his followers, as the ones who bear his name, Christians, truth must permeate every commitment we make. As everything that we commit to do, we are doing in the name of the living God, who is truth. That is no small thing. If we think about it, Jesus is reminding us here this morning that we all, every single one of us in this room who have called upon the name of the Lord, we are ambassadors who represent the living God wherever we go. This means we take him into the workplace. So when we say we'll have something done, let's get it done. When we make a business deal, it had better be done in the light. No shady bits going on in the background. Husbands, when we give our word to our wives about doing the dishes or fixing that fence, we're not just bound to doing these things from good will. No, these, those words, they have a weight behind them. Young ones, if your parents ask you, have you done your homework? Make sure that you don't deceive them because your words aren't just random vibrations hitting somebody else's eardrum. Parents, if you say no to something, stick to it, even when your little one gives you that gorgeous little puppy dog face because we're teaching them that our yes means yes, our no means no, and that our words really matter in this dark and deceptive world. What have we seen here this morning? Well, we've seen that when we make a commitment, the world is watching. Therefore, we must be truthful in what we say. Yes is yes. No is no. And we stick to what we say because we are representing the living God in all we say and do. Imagine for a moment, if that was the reputation of the church 
in this world. Imagine it. Well, brothers and sisters, it can start here in Armadale at this church this morning. Because that's how Jesus directs us to conduct ourselves in this world. He he directs us to keep truth central in all that we say and do in public and in private. This means that we must conduct ourselves in the knowledge that all that we do is done in the sight of the living God. This is the warning. When we deceive, when we hide the truth, we don't just run the risk of ruining our reputation, but we bring the name of of God into the mud as well. So if you are here this morning and you would say you really struggle with keeping the truth central in business, in marriage, in parenting, in life, in general, then I want to remind you that there is a battle raging and that we are not yet perfected. We're not entirely sanctified and that struggle with deceit on this side of eternity, dealing with our fallen natures, that attempted to protect ourselves will happen until kingdom come. Now, I don't want to downplay this at all this morning. Uh, This sin does have its consequences, not only in our lives, but also it affects the lives of other people and before God. But people lie for a plethora of different reasons. But people usually lie, tell half-truths, and exaggerate, not usually because they're wanting to completely ruin themselves and other people, but usually because the truth can paint them in a bad light. Whether that's to do with our past or or something that we haven't done well or even something that we want to be true, that's where we usually find ourselves not telling the truth and nothing but the truth or hiding the truth to make things seem a little bit better even when we attach that word promise to it. But we need to see that for what it is, brothers and sisters. That is fear of what others will think. That's usually why we play loosely with the truth, because we fear what others will think of us. But this is the thing. If you have called upon the name of the Lord, your identity is no longer defined by your past. Your abilities, your talents no longer give you that worth. No, in Christ, because of his perfect truth-keeping and truth-speaking from the very heart in all that he did life, which has been given to us, we stand justified before the creator of the universe at this very moment. We have nothing to prove. In Christ, we are worthy. In Christ. And so I want to remind you here this morning, we have a gracious God, a gracious God who desires to work in us to bring truth and integrity into all we say and do in all areas of our life. And so if you see your sin, you hate your deception, then might these words from the Lord Jesus Christ be held high among us this morning. It is he who says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Church, the kingdom is open to every and anyone who realizes their sin and turns to God. Though we might struggle, though we might mourn in that struggle and battle, we have one who invites us to go to him in our mess over and over and over and over again. So this morning, church, would you join me in praying to the only to, to, to not only be a truth seeker in this world, but a truth speaker in all that we say. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is indeed the double-edged sword. And Father, we thank you that in Christ, that where we see where we fall short, we can look to the beloved. We can look to the one who has kept the law perfectly. Not just in all that he did, but in all that he said and all that he thought, all that he intended to do. He never once sinned against you in that area. And we thank you, Father God, that that life, that perfect life has been given to us. Father, we're keenly aware that we are on this side of eternity, that we're in different contexts, in business, in work, in parenting, uh, being young, university, whatever it might be, where truth can sometimes uh, be something that we're tempted to hide. Father, would you please help us? Would you please change us? Might this church here in Armidale be a place that is known to be truthful, truth in love, that we are not a bashing symbol, a clanging gong, but a place that holds the truth of the gospel high in this city and that you would draw all manner of people to yourself. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.